0: Thank you for joining us for the April 2012 Respiratory Care Journal podcast. As usual, this is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Farge. We have a full issue again this month. So, Sarah, let's get started.
1: Our first for this month is Determining the Basis for a Taxonomy of Mechanical Ventilation by Chatburn and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to determine if stakeholders are familiar enough with the published constructs related to modes of mechanical ventilation to form a basis for consensus. The hypotheses tested were, there is a concordance on 10 basic constructs related to modes, concordance with the basic constructs varies among stakeholders according to professional training and professional activity and concordance varies among the set of constructs the survey was distributed through an internet-based tool to 2994 physicians respiratory therapists nurses engineers and others involved with mechanical ventilation the response rate was 15 percent Respondents were 55% respiratory therapists, 35% physicians, 3% nurses, 1% engineers, and 5% other professionals. There was an 82% concordance with the 10 constructs. Respiratory therapists showed the highest degree of concordance. No significant difference in concordance was observed when data were grouped by professional activity. Concordance differed significantly among the survey questions. The authors concluded that the survey results indicate that respondents were either familiar with or amenable to previously published literature that the survey constructs represented.
0: The evolution of mechanical ventilation over the past 30 years has resulted in an unmanageable number of names to describe modes of ventilation. Chatburn et al. surveyed the medical, education, and business communities to determine whether stakeholders are familiar enough with published constructs related to modes of mechanical ventilation to form a consensus. They found that respondents were either familiar with or amenable to the published literature related to constructs for ventilator mode taxonomy. In his editorial... Adams suggests that the task of finding agreement about nomenclature is daunting, considering that new modes are constantly being developed by industry. He suggests that the solution is education, assuring that clinicians are familiar with the ventilators and modes used in their unit.
1: evaluation of peak inspiratory pressure, tidal volume, and ventilatory frequency during ventilation with a neonatal self-inflating bag resuscitator is by Bassani et al. The aims of this study were to assess possible sources of the high variability and to evaluate the adequacy of obtained values in relation to the recommended values for neonatal resuscitation. This was an experimental study in which 172 health professionals who work in neonatal intensive care manually ventilated a test lung with a self-inflating bag in five different handling techniques using 10, 5, 4, 3, and 2 fingers. Delivered values of peak inspiratory pressure, tidal volume, and ventilatory frequency were compared, taking into account the different handling modalities and professions by analysis of variance for repeated measures. Peak inspiratory pressure and tidal volume were significantly affected by the handling technique, with higher values for a greater number of fingers used for ventilation. Physiotherapists tended to deliver higher volumes and lower rates. The authors observed high variability of all studied parameters and overall inadequacy of obtained values. Most volunteers delivered excessive pressures and volumes at insufficient ventilatory frequency. The authors conclude that delivered values seem to depend on operators' individual and professional differences, as well as on the number of fingers used to compress the bag.
0: Although self-inflating bags are widely used in the hospital, variability of delivered parameters is high, which might result in either hypoventilation or lung injury. The aim of the study by Bassani et al. was to assess possible sources of the high variability and to evaluate the adequacy of obtained values in relation to the recommended values for neonatal resuscitation. They found a high occurrence of inadequate delivered values, regardless of handling technique and professional background. The delivered values depend on operators' individual and professional differences, as well as on the number of fingers used to compress the bag. As pointed out by Deacons, the things that matter are knowing the device, its attributes and limitations, and how to apply it during the most critical times.
1: Next, we have the paper, Modification of a High-Frequency Oscillator Circuit with a Heated Expiratory Filter to Prevent Infectious Pathogen Transmission, a Bench Study, by McCowan and colleagues. The authors modified the circuit of a high frequency oscillator to include a heated expiratory filter, eliminating the need for daily filter changes due to buildup of condensate. The purpose of the bench study was to determine if substitution of the filter resulted in a clinically important change in delivered tidal volume or amplitude. They measured tidal volume and amplitude, using five of each filter type across six patient-setting scenarios. Filter efficacy was tested through an independent laboratory, and expiratory resistance measurements were taken after prolonged use with humidification. The clinically important threshold value for tidal volume was excluded by the limits of agreement, confirming that use of the modified circuit does not result in alterations in tidal volume. The clinically important threshold for amplitude was the same as the lower limit of agreement, indicating that it is possible for amplitude values to be different between the two filters. Filter efficacy for the substituted filter was not affected. Expiratory resistance was unchanged in the substituted filter, but nearly doubled for the manufacturer's filter after 48 hours. The authors conclude that modifying the circuit to include a heated expiratory filter does not affect tidal volume, and the filter material remains efficacious during oscillation. Amplitude varies under some conditions.
0: High-frequency oscillation poses a patient and caregiver risk when the circuit is disconnected. McEwen modified the circuit to include a heated expiratory filter and determined if the use of the filter resulted in a clinically important change in delivered tidal volume or amplitude. They found that modifying the circuit to include a heated expiratory filter does not affect tidal volume and the filter remains efficacious during oscillation. However, amplitude varies under some conditions. In his editorial, Berlinski appropriately points out that the in in vitro design of this study is an important limitation. However, he also points out the importance of minimizing the risk of environmental exposures to healthcare workers.
1: Observational study of head of bed elevation adherence using a continuous monitoring system in a medical intensive care unit is by Wolken et al. The hypothesis of this study was that continuous monitoring of of head-of-bed elevation with audible alerts and visual cues when the elevation is less than 30 degrees will improve adherence by 15%. Head of bed elevation was continuously monitored and recorded on a central monitoring station and displayed on the bedside monitor of 16 of 24 medical intensive care unit beds. Manual bedside checks were performed twice daily at varying times. Continuous head of bed angle was available from 31% patient beds over a six and a half month period, representing 24% of mechanical ventilator days. Continuous monitoring was performed for 7,720 hours, 5,542 with the data displayed on bedside monitors, and 2,178 with the data only available from the central monitors. Head of bed elevation was at least 30 degrees for 76 percent of the hours when the data were displayed on bedside monitors and for 61 percent of the hours when it was not. The authors conclude that real-time monitoring of -of head-of-bed elevation is feasible, and when combined with audible alarms and visual cues, improves elevation adherence.
0: Elevation of the head of the bed greater than or equal to 30 degrees reduces ventilator-associated pneumonia in mechanically ventilated patients. However, adherence is variable and difficult to monitor continuously. Wolkin et al. designed a clever system for monitoring of head of bed elevation with audible alerts and visual cues when the elevation is less than 30 degrees. They found that real-time monitoring of head of bed elevation is feasible and when combined with audible alarms and visual cues improves adherence to greater than or equal to 30 degree elevation. As Harbrecht indicates, we do not know whether this approach results in a lower rate of ventilator-associated pneumonia. If it does, then this would be a relatively simple approach to an important complication of mechanical ventilation.
1: Next is the paper by Passos et al., Evaluation of Functional Respiratory Parameters in AIDS Patients Assisted in the Infectious Diseases Ambulatory Care Clinic of a Tertiary Care University Hospital in Brazil. The authors conducted a prospective cross-sectional study to evaluate the pulmonary function of AIDS patients cared for in the Infectious Diseases Ambulatory Care Clinic. Maximal inspiratory and expiratory pressures were assessed in 73 patients, and spirometry was assessed in 54 patients. Clinical, demographic, and laboratory data were also evaluated. The mean time of HIV infection was similar for men and women, and the mean time of use of antiretroviral therapy was 8.5 years for women and 7.7 years for men. Maximal inspiratory and expiratory pressures were normal in 48% and 66% of patients, respectively. The use of tenofovir and presence of cough by the time the test was performed were independently associated with maximum expiratory pressure below the predicted value. Elevated creatine kinase values were associated with prolonged antiretroviral usage. FVC was reduced in 26% of patients and was independently associated with high and or intermediate cardiovascular risk and those with reduced vesicular murmur in auscultation. FEV1 was significantly lower in patients with prolonged time of smoking and high and or intermediate cardiovascular risk. Reduced FEV1 to FVC ratio was associated with smoking. The authors concluded that the AIDS patients in their study had reduced parameters of maximal respiratory pressures and spirometry. They suggest pulmonary function tests should be implemented as an essential part of the medical assistance to AIDS patients.
0: Pulmonary function in HIV-infected patients is associated with a reduction in pulmonary ventilation parameters. Pesos et al. evaluated the pulmonary function of patients with AIDS. They found that patients with AIDS had reduced parameters of maximal respiratory pressures and spirometry. They speculate that the respiratory muscle dysfunction might be due to multiple factors, but that smoking was associated with the abnormal airway function. The authors suggest that pulmonary function testing should be part of the care of patients with AIDS.
1: The relationship between anxiety, depression, and quality of life in adult patients with cystic fibrosis is by Johannes et al. The authors investigated the prevalence and factors associated with anxiety and depression, including quality of life in adult patients with cystic fibrosis. There were 121 adult patients with cystic fibrosis recruited from an outpatient clinic. Participants self-completed the Hospital Anxiety Depression Scale and the Cystic Fibrosis Quality of Life Questionnaire. Sociodemographic data and values for lung function were extracted from the medical notes. There were 33% of patients identified with anxiety symptoms, and 17% with depressive symptoms. Factors related with depression were impaired quality of life and low lung function. Anxiety was associated with difficulty in interpersonal relationships and severity of chest symptoms. Physical functioning, social functioning, treatment issues, chest symptoms, emotional functioning, concerns for the future, interpersonal relationships, body future and career concerns were all significantly correlated with anxiety and depression. The authors conclude that anxiety and depressive symptoms are common in adult patients with cystic fibrosis and routine screening for symptoms of anxiety and depression is a worthy endeavor.
0: The impact of anxiety and depression on quality of life in adult patients with cystic fibrosis is unknown. Johannes et al. evaluated the prevalence and factors associated with anxiety and depression in adult patients with cystic fibrosis. They found that anxiety and depressive symptoms are common in adult patients with cystic fibrosis and that they are associated with poorer quality of life, lung function, reduced physical functioning, and severity of chest symptoms. They recommend that routine screening for symptoms of anxiety and depression is a worthy endeavor.
1: Next is a paper by Kosciusz and colleagues, Comparison of Airway Wall Remodeling in Asthma and COPD Biopsy Findings. The aim of the study was to compare the basement membrane thickness and epithelial damage in biopsy specimens from patients with asthma and COPD. The study was performed in 20 patients with asthma and 12 patients with COPD who had not been treated with corticosteroids for at least three months before study enrollment. Patients' characteristics were based on the results of clinical assessment, allergic skin prick tests, lung function testing, and methicoline bronchial challenge. All patients underwent bronchoscopy with forceps biopsies of bronchial mucosa. Light microscope and semi-automatic software were used to measure basement membrane thickness in and eosin stained sections. Denudation and partial epithelial damage were assessed independently by two pathologists. The mean basement membrane thickness in patients with asthma was 12.5 microns and only 7.8 microns in patients with COPD. Overall percentage of the basement membrane length lined with damaged epithelium was 45% in the asthma group and 47% in the COPD group. Total and partial epithelial damage were not different between the groups. The authors conclude that basement membrane thickness might be a histopathological parameter helpful in distinguishing patients with asthma and COPD.
0: Bronchial remodeling is known to affect not only patients with asthma, but also those with COPD. Some studies have demonstrated that basement membrane thickening and destruction of the bronchial epithelium are also found in COPD. The aim of this study was to compare the basement membrane thickness and epithelial damage in biopsy specimens from patients with asthma and COPD. They found that basement membrane thickness might be a histopathological parameter helpful in distinguishing asthma and COPD patients, whereas the extent and pattern of epithelial damage is not.
1: Correlation of airway hyperresponsiveness with obstructive spirometric indices and FEV1 greater than 90% of predicted is by Cotti et al., Pulmonary function testing databases for a four-year period were retrospectively reviewed. All technically adequate spirometry studies were included, based on the criteria of FEV1 greater than 90% of predicted and FEV1 to FVC ratio below the lower limit of normal, based on 95th percentile confidence intervals. Clinical indications for testing were noted. Testing for post-bronchodilator response, lung volumes, and methacholine challenge tests were reviewed for evidence of airway hyperresponsiveness. Comparisons were made between symptomatic versus asymptomatic individuals and FEV1 values less than or greater than 100% of predicted a total of 280 studies were analyzed during their clinical evaluation sixty nine percent of patients had post bronchodilator spirometry recorded twenty three percent had lung volumes and eleven percent completed methicoline challenge testing Indications for spirometry included 193 symptomatic patients and 87 asymptomatic patients. Nearly 28% of patients with post-bronchodilator testing and 18% of the overall group met criteria for airway hyperresponsiveness. No differences in airway hyperresponsiveness were found between the symptomatic and asymptomatic groups. 75% of patients with airway hyperresponsiveness had an FEV1 less than 100% when compared to patients with an FEV1 greater than or equal to 100%. The authors concluded that a normal FEV1 greater than 90% of predicted with obstructive indices may not represent a normal physiological variant, as 18% of patients were found to have underlying airway
0: hyperresponsiveness. Published spirometry guidelines suggest elevated FVC and FEV1 greater than 100% of predicted with an obstructive ratio might represent a physiological variant. There is minimal evidence whether this finding can be indicative of symptomatic airways obstruction. Cottey et al. compared symptomatic versus asymptomatic individuals and FEV1 values less than or greater than 100% of predicted. They found that an FEV1 greater than 90% of predicted with obstructive indices might not represent a physiological variant, as 28% of patients were found to have underlying airway hyperresponsiveness. This suggests that clinicians should evaluate for airway hyperresponsiveness in symptomatic patients, even if the FEV1 is greater than 90% of predicted.
1: Next we have the paper, The Role of Pro-Inflammatory and Anti-Inflammatory Adipokines on Exercise-Induced Bronchospasm in Obese Adolescents Undergoing Treatment by Da Silva et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the role of pro- and anti-inflammatory adipokines on exercise-induced bronchospasm in obese adolescents evaluated after long-term interdisciplinary therapy. The study included 35 post-pubertal obese adolescents, including 20 without exercise-induced bronchospasm and 15 with exercise-induced bronchospasm. Body composition was measured by plethysmography and visceral fat was analyzed by ultrasound. Serum levels of adiponectin and leptin were analyzed. Exercise-induced bronchospasm and lung function were evaluated according to the ATS criteria. Patients were recruited to a one-year interdisciplinary intervention of weight loss, consisting of medical, nutritional, exercised, and psychological components. Anthropometrics and lung function variables improved significantly after the therapy in both groups. Furthermore, there was a reduction in occurrence of exercise induced bronchospasm in obese adolescents after treatment. There was an increase in adiponectin levels and a reduction in leptin levels after the therapy. In addition, a low FEV one value was a risk factor associated with EIB occurrence at baseline and was correlated after treatment with changes in anthropometric and maximal oxygen consumption values as well as the adipokines profile. The authors conclude that one year of interdisciplinary therapy decreased exercise-induced bronchospasm frequency in obese adolescents, paralleled by an increase in lung function and improvement in the pro- and anti-inflammatory adipokines.
0: Recent studies have demonstrated a greater prevalence of exercise-induced bronchospasm in obese adolescents. The objective of the study by De Silva et al. was to evaluate the role of pro- or anti-inflammatory adipokines on exercise-induced bronchospasm in obese adolescents evaluated after long-term interdisciplinary therapy. They found that one year of interdisciplinary therapy decreased exercise-induced bronchospasm frequently in obese adolescents paralleled by an increase in lung function and improvement in pro- and anti-inflammatory adipokines.
1: Our final original research paper this month is Ventilatory Inefficiency as a Limiting Factor for Exercise in Patients with COPD is by Kavietis and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the influence of ventilatory inefficiency over exercise capacity in COPD patients. It was a prospective study of 35 COPD patients with different levels of severity in whom a cardiopulmonary stress test was performed. Ventilatory inefficiency was represented by the minute ventilation to carbon dioxide production relationship. Its influence over maximal oxygen consumption, power, and ventilatory threshold were evaluated Surrogate parameters of cardiac function, like oxygen pulse and circulatory power, were also evaluated. Cardiopulmonary stress test was stopped due to dyspnea with elevated minute ventilation and marked reduction of breathing reserve. A severe increase in carbon dioxide production, a decrease of maximal oxygen consumption, and a decrease of power were demonstrated. There were 28 patients who presented with dynamic hyperinflation. Linear regression showed a reduction of 2% on maximum oxygen consumption, 2.6% on power, 1% on oxygen pulse, and 322.7 units on circulatory power per each unit of increment in minute ventilation to carbon dioxide production relationship. The authors conclude that ventilatory inefficiency correlates with a reduction in exercise capacity in patients with COPD.
0: Ventilatory inefficiency increases ventilatory demand and it represents increased dead space, deregulation of respiratory control, and early lactic threshold. It is associated with expiratory flow limitation that enhances dynamic hyperinflation and might limit exercise capacity. The objective of the study by Cavitis et al. was to evaluate the influence of ventilatory inefficiency over exercise capacity in patients with COPD. They found that ventilatory inefficiency correlates with a reduction in exercise capacity in patients with COPD and suggest that including this parameter in the evaluation of exercise limitation in this patient population provides a meaningful contribution toward the understanding of its pathophysiology.
1: This month, we publish a Year in Review for 2011 on the topics of long-term oxygen therapy, pulmonary rehabilitation, airway management, acute lung injury, education, and management. Another review addresses imaging of acute respiratory distress syndrome. We also publish clinical practice guidelines on aerosol delivery device selection. This month's case reports are percutaneous dilational tracheotomy with Pierre-Robin syndrome, eosinic pneumonia associated with azacitidine, imaging and physiologic assessments to clarify choke point physiology, lung bullae with air fluid levels, and emergency bedside extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for acute tracheal obstruction. Our teaching case of the month relates to an 87-year-old woman with unilateral pulmonary edema.
0: To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.